0: Welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Today's film is 1999's The Blair Witch Project, submitted to us by James as a request. I think both Craig and I are going to have a lot to say about this movie because uh, we were in college uh, when this came out. It was big, big news all over the place, and it broke a lot of conventions, set some records, and surprised a lot of people. At the time, for a lot of reasons we'll probably get into, I got to see it in the theater. I think you got to see it in the theater, too, right? Yep. I saw it with my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, so, you know, happy memories there. But I do remember that she threw up uh, after watching it. She literally couldn't watch the movie after about 15 minutes, watched most of the movie through sideways glances and mostly with her eyes closed. I think today, if we had gone in to see it, she would have just left the theater in a huff, but... Uh, It must have been real love at the time. Right. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, she threw up. And not because, you know, everything that was happening on screen was so disgusting, but because the camera work uh, was so shaky. Because this is a found footage movie. It's not the very first found footage movie ever to be shot, but it's probably one of the most notorious and certainly one of the first modern day ones to get huge box office success. And it therefore spawned a whole genre, really, of uh, found-footage filmmaking. I mean, this movie cost about, depending on who you listen to, $25,000 to $75,000 to make. It was shot on a 16 millimeter camera and a Hi8 camera, which is not even digital. It's like, uh, it was just, just a video camera. Shot uh, off of a 35-page script that had no dialogue. Uh, all the dialogue was intended to be improvised and was, in fact, improvised by these three actors walking around in the woods for eight days. Uh, this was packaged up and taken to Sundance, and because of a very clever marketing campaign on the part of the producers of the film, who went to great lengths to try to convince people that this, the events of this movie, the found footage in this movie, actually happened, it did get a, quite a bit of notoriety. It was picked up very quickly by Lionsgate. It was one of their early successes, and distributed and made hundreds of millions across the world by the time it was all over. So, very, very notorious but was a very brand new thing for a lot of us uh, when we went out to see it. And so at the time we saw it, it seemed very fresh and original and, and interesting. Everybody was talking about it. Right, Craig?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I saw it. I was excited about it. And, you know, like you said, these types of movies that have such name recognition, if you're a horror fan, which I assume you are, otherwise why would you be here listening to this podcast – i imagine you've seen this movie so we will i'm sure talk about some plot points and whatnot but really when it comes down to it it's a very simple story about these three i guess kind of like student filmmakers um led by a girl named heather uh, all of the actors in the movie use their real names uh, heather donahue is her name Uh, And she wants to do kind of this documentary project about this local legend, I guess from either the town that she's from or, or nearby in Maryland and she recruits a couple of guys Josh who it seems like she's friends with and Mike who it doesn't seem Heather doesn't seem to know him in the beginning it's like they meet in the beginning but i guess he maybe had some connection with Josh or something but anyway she basically just pulls along these two guys to operate cameras for her and they go out well first they go to this town uh, Burkittsville which is an actual town in Maryland and they do some interviews with the local townspeople, and that's some interesting stuff, which I want to talk about, but eventually they get into the woods, uh, and and spooky things start happening, and that's pretty much the whole movie. But what made the movie so interesting to me at the time was that I was one of the people... And I'm not ashamed to say this because they did such a good job with the marketing. I was one of the people who was duped into believing that these events were real, that this was actual documentary footage that had been found uh, and that these three student filmmakers were missing prior to the movie's release and upon the movie's release if you went to the IMDb page. Um, all of the principal actors were listed on IMDb as as missing. They even had aired a couple of weeks before the release of the movie. They had aired a documentary about the Blair Witch legend on the Sci Fi Channel, and they had presented that as being factual as well. And I had seen that, um, and it looked. Legit. I mean, as legit as any of those, you know, supernatural documentary type things look. And so when I went to the theater to see it, I, too, saw it with my then boyfriend, who's now my whatever you want to call him. (laughs) (laughs) The guy I've lived with for 20 years. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, we went and saw it together, and um, he's not even a big fan of horror, as I've said many times, but uh, we both f- were freaked out because we thought that what we were seeing on the screen was real. And we went and saw it in a different town because it didn't play. I don't, well, maybe it played in our town, but if it. Did we went and saw it in a different town? And on the ride home, we were just talking about it the whole time like, oh my gosh, what could it have been? What you know, were people messing with them? Was it really supernatural? Um, and of course, weeks later, uh, it came out that uh, it was fiction. But the experience of seeing it, believing it to be real, was a really cool experience that anybody who will see it now will never have. Yeah. And so I think that going into it knowing that it's a piece of fiction drastically alters your reaction to this. Yeah,
0: movie. I, I think you're absolutely right. I it's it's a product of its time. And what a time it was, really. Now, it's almost laughable today to think that we would consider a movie that's released as a big feature across the country that's been produced by some people and made money off of somebody's tragedy uh, in this mysterious, crazy ass way, right? And even with the backing of some documentary on TV and a website, they put together a website with all these interviews, we're a little more sophisticated now I would say, because of all of the internet <laughs> that's come in the last 20 years. Yeah. And God, I can't believe it's been 20 years. <laughs> I know. And this kind of thing happens all the time. We really don't know what to believe. We've almost become so cynical now because we see so much fakeness around us that the stuff we even want to believe is true. Uh, is sometimes needs verification like 30 times, right? I just saw the Tiger King documentary on TV and... I was just, like, stunned <laughs> at how this could actually be true, <laughs> yeah. you know?
1: But, but you're right. It was a different time. Like, it's not like we were in the dark ages in 1994. The Internet existed. You know, we used it for school and work and all those types of things. But
0: but we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Facebook.
1: And we I, we didn't have smartphones. And, like, I was a poor college student. I couldn't afford to have Internet at home. Like, mm. I had to go to a computer lab on right. campus. Uh, To use the internet So it's not like we had it at our fingertips The way that we do today I'm sure that you know Somebody who really wanted to do some sleuthing Even at the time could have figured it out And I'm sure that there's probably A part of me that was very Excited about it and didn't
0: didn't want to believe it. I her, didn't right? want to be skeptical yeah. about mm-hmm.
1: it. Yeah, I, I wanted to think it was yeah. real, and I'm glad I did. I mean, it was a really fun experience. Well, I-
0: I'm a little jealous of you, actually, Craig, to be honest. I, I was thought I was going to make fun of you for this, but the way that you put it, um, I actually feel a little jealous because um, I went into this fully, knowing full well it was a movie, and actually... There were people in the parking lot, could have been you and Alan, who knows, but there were people in the parking lot yeah. leaving that theater not far from where your town is. They were talking about, oh my God, the movie, like, and, I, and did you see online how that girl did this and this guy did that? And Bic and I and our companions were just sort of shaking our heads going, they are so dumb that they think this is, <laughs> this is real. And coming into the movie at that time with just knowing that this couldn't possibly be real in my mind anyway, I found it very tedious. I was really hyped up for this very scary experience, and yes, uh, people had even said, "Look, the movie's scary, even though it doesn't show you anything." You know, what you don't see is just a, is scarier than what you do see. And I buy, and I, I buy that hook, line, and sinker. You know, I mean, we see a ton of movies, and I and I completely understand that. So I wasn't even expecting to be able to see the witch on screen or to get these big, you know, gross reveal or or whatever kind of see violence or whatever to shock me. Man, even with that, I just felt like it was about an hour and a half of people wandering around the woods swearing at each other. And and that was kind of how I left it. I was, I would say I was a little chilled by the ending because I thought it was kind of clever and unexpected. And maybe that was about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but see, part of that is what made it feel even more real to me. Yes. Now, you already said it was it was unscripted. You know, they were given basic plot points and they were basically dropped in the woods. The crew, the very small crew and the director were always nearby but out of sight. And the the three actors had handheld walkie-talkies that they could communicate with The crew if they needed to but basically what happened was the crew would go set up just like these crates with equipment that the people were going to need for the day and with the instructions and and a map for for locations so they would show up in the morning they would find this uh instructions you know they would get new film reels there would be instructions inside the the Tins for the film reels, and they would be given, you know, an idea of where they were supposed to go, and then they would just, you know, walk to those places throughout the day. There were things in place, like they had a GPS system in case they got lost. Um, they, I don't believe they were allowed to have their cell phones on them. And in fact, uh, though they were guaranteed that they were at no risk of being lost, they did get seriously lost a number of times. And one of those times they actually had to take shelter at just some random stranger's house uh, until they could yeah. call the crew and say, come get us, we got lost. And uh, they took them back to a motel for that night and then set them back loose in the forest the next day. But all of the dialogue, though they had, you know, they were given directives like, okay, this is your relationship. Like initially, Heather and Mike were supposed to be antagonistic towards one another. And you can see that. And And Josh and Heather were supposed to be friendlier because they had an established relationship. Well, when they got out there in the woods, I mean, these three actors, they weren't friends in real life. They just auditioned for these roles. So when they got out there, it was actually Heather and Josh who had a lot of tension between them. Um, so much so uh, that the filmmakers actually had to step in at one point. You know, they said they weren't going to do that. They were just going to let things play out the way they played out. But it got so tense between uh, Heather and Josh at one point that they had to step in um, to to bring it down a notch. But that's part of what I think made it feel real, was that it didn't feel scripted because it wasn't. Yeah, And and yeah, you said they walk around the woods swearing a lot. They do. They say f- like 160 times through the movie. But that's how the people that I know talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, n- n- not, not necessarily in mixed company, but if I were out in the woods lost with a couple of my friends, you bet your ass you would hear the F word probably about every other second you wouldn't normally find that in a scripted piece because they'd be worried about ratings and you know being able to air it on tv these guys who made uh the film you know just two guys getting started out daniel myrick and eduardo sanchez they had no real aspirations for this they hoped their their big wish was that maybe they could get it on cable tv um, and it just so happened that it did so well at Cannes. It was Cannes, I think, where it premiered.
0: Uh, Sundance, I think. Sundance,
1: yeah. It did so well that there was a bidding war for it, and and the rights were uh, sold for just over a million dollars. And it got this big uh, theatrical release. So I guess it's just kind of that grassroots feel of it. The kind of, and it feels amateur. The the whole film, well the vast majority, I think 90 some percent of the film was filmed by the actors on location in real time. uh, And it, and it feels like it. Mm. Um, They ended up with something, I don't know, 20 to 30 or something hours of footage. Uh, The original cut of the film was two and a half hours. It ends up, I think it's just over. If you don't count the credits, it's just over an hour and 15 minutes um, that we see. But I think that it, it's it's well edited, uh, but at the same time, the the cinematography seems amateur enough that you believe that it was shot by amateurs, because it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on all of those points, it works. But you're right. Knowing that it's not real, it's kind of boring to watch people walk around the woods for an hour and a half.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, nowadays I think that's how people are going to watch this movie. So it's really, you know, we have to talk about it in context as well as today, right? We have to kind of measure those two things. That's why, you you know, we're going to talk so much about the history of this movie. They had set up a website where they had uh, used f- footage uh, that they actually had shot for the movie but decided to leave out. There's a whole, There was supposed to be a whole section of the movie at the beginning or maybe at the end where they had set up the missing people with interviews stating that the kids had gone missing and fake news footage and and all that. And instead, all we get at the beginning of the film is in October 1994, uh, three filmmakers went into the woods to film a documentary about the Blair Witch and were never seen again. And this their footage was found uh, years later, basically. Right. They decided that that stuff would be a little too cliche and too... Um, too scripted for their mostly unscripted film. Mm -hmm. Really good decision, by the way. Yes, But they were able to use it in the marketing campaign. But the fact that the movie begins with just a title, The Blair Witch Project, that, and then cuts right into their project, right into their footage, and then ends and just gets pretty much silent credits for the ending uh, is also powerful right it feels gritty it feels like something you happened upon it feels like that tape in the ring or in what was that one christmas movie we saw where the kids pop a tape in that they find in
1: oh yeah no it was a halloween movie (laughs) it was one of the anthologies the one with the scary clown i think
0: yeah art Uh, the clown i don't know i
1: don't remember uh, yeah whatever (laughs) it was
0: Yeah, this scary clown. But yeah, I mean, it has that feel to it. And you're right, they were very successful at what they set out to do. It's very convincing as a found footage film. And and they hired Josh because he could run a camera, they said. They were like over 2,000 actors that auditioned for this. And they had a bunch of people improvise together, narrowed them down. Josh had experience running a camera. And so that was one of the big reasons he was picked uh, to be one of the people here. And then there were all kinds of ideas that they had, like they were going to maybe have a romantic angle between Josh and Heather, but then they kind of decided not to go with that. And then the the instructions that they got in the film canisters throughout the eight day shoot were were specific to each character, so each character would read them. You know, it's like an improv game, really. Like, yeah, today you need to question. You know, today you lose the map. T- today you decide that you need to walk south, and you're not going to take no for an answer. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so these actors were just given little bits of things to play off of but very talented in their ability to do that i mean 20 hours of footage were shot for this movie and you know were edited down eventually to get the the 80 minutes that we have and it's not even a particularly tight <laughs> 80 minutes right i think the movie would actually do well if it were even shorter but that's not something you can put in a movie theater you know it's not right. something you can make money from so I understand why they didn't the part the first part of the movie I think and the last bit of the movie were the were the best parts for me when they're in the town of Burkittsville which is yeah. where this Blair Lich legend actually supposedly comes from and they're interviewing townspeople and that part also feels really genuine even though most of the town the people they're interviewing are actors right
1: it, they are but the but the, act, the the three principal actors didn't know that that was something else that you know these the filmmakers are so clever they were so clever in their planning i i can't think of another example of where something like this has been done where they went out of their way to establish this mythology of the blair witch which they totally made up like it was it was inspired by some other things but Really, it's entirely made up by them, created by them. But they convinced the three principal actors that it was actual lore. And so when the three actors went into the town and were interviewing these townspeople, they believed that this was actual lore of this town. And they believed that all of the people that they were talking to were genuine citizens of Burkittsville. And a, <laughs> couple, of, and a couple of them were, but most of them weren't. You know, they were paid actors as well. Um, But the footage, for the most part, comes across as really genuine. And some things, and it's not just in this early footage, but things throughout, like there were just these happy accidents um, Mm. that turned out so well for them. One of my favorite interviews uh, is, it it, it just, it looks so genuine. A very normal-looking, middle-class mother uh, outside of a store... (laughs) holding her kid who's probably two or, or maybe even younger than two and she's talking about the lore of the blair witch and the kid for whatever reason got kind of upset and kept trying to put his hand over her face and like started crying like he didn't want her to talk about that that i ever heard was the two men were out hunting uh-huh. and they were camped near the Cabin or something that she's supposed to haunt, no, uh-huh. no, and they disappeared no. off the face of the earth. No. Really? Okay, it's all right, Ingrid. I'm just telling a scary story, but it's not true. Now that yeah. that could only be an accident. There's no yeah. way that they coached that kid to do that. Um, but it played so well. That was so creepy. I thought
0: that was the second creepiest part of the movie. Yeah, was that kid? Yeah, that whole bit is great, and the setup is good. And they even get to an older woman who's, I think played up to be a very religious old lady is sitting in a trailer comes out and is very free to talk about an encounter that she had with the witch where she encountered this woman in this figure in the woods and and she had hair on her arms and the woman opened her she was wearing a blouse or something and opened up her blouse and 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 she had hair all over her body and also clever in that none of it is really complete right nobody sits down and says let me tell you the legend of the Blair Witch of Burkittsville and just lays out the mythology for you. It's exactly like folklore and legends and things get passed down to generation to generation this person's got a bit of it. That person's got a bit of it. This person has a bit that contradicts what that person says. This person says they're full of shit. Half of them don't believe it. Some of them are telling it jokingly. One, one person, only one person really tells it in a serious way. And then there's this stuff about Rusty Parr in there and somebody being murdered. And I have to admit, even after watching the movie the first time and the second time through, I, I still don't have a real clear concept of what this actual Blair Witch Legend is, I would be compelled to go to the internet to research more. Right. It's just so real in that way, too. Right. That it doesn't feel like a movie, right?
1: Yes, I I totally agree. I I mean, basically, I think what the lore boils down to is there uh, was this witch, you know, for whatever reason. I don't remember if they said that she had originally been a townsperson and she had been outcast or something. I don't remember. But for as long as anybody can remember, there's been this witch that haunts the woods. But beyond that, she, this witch makes other bad things happen so like um you mentioned uh rustin parr rustin parr was this guy who moved out there into the woods he had a house out in the woods and all of a sudden all these kids went missing like seven kids went missing eventually one day they said this is all coming from a townsperson interview he came back into town and said i'm finished and nobody knew what he was talking about but they went out to his house and they found all these dead kids Um, And he said that he had been compelled to do it. He couldn't take the eyes watching him from the woods anymore or something like that. Mm. When Heather and the boys are out in the woods, the first location they go to is this place called Coffin Rock. And she tells this story about this group of hunters, I think, who uh, went out into the woods. And she's very dramatic. I love all of her, especially early in the movie when she's yeah. doing the narration for this documentary she puts on this totally affected voice and like yes it's so it, it's annoying it's an uh, oh my god she's terribly annoying through the whole thing like <laughs> yep. she's lucky that those guys didn't kill her like because <laughs> I might have
0: in the torso of each man the intestines had been torn out crudely on each man's sun bleached face was inscribed in decipherable writing cut into their flesh with an eerie precision The men, still entranced by the horror of what had happened, left the scene to find the sheriff, and did not sketch the writing, and did not remove the bodies from the rock. Upon return, vultures were seen at the rock, but upon inspection, the bodies had been removed by persons unknown. The search party claimed that the stench of death was still thick, and whomever had taken the bodies had done so in a matter of hours. That happened here, at Coffin Rock. She is the real Blair Witch. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: She is awful. Uh, Sorry, Heather Donahue, (laughs) but you were were really annoying.
0: I mean, she intentionally played it that way, though. She said she based a character off of a, a director she had worked with who, who thought she thought was just this pretentious asshole. Uh-huh. So, yeah, she did a good job at that. You're right. Super annoying through the whole thing. <laughs> and it,
1: it comes across. and But, you know, in this totally... It, it's what you would expect somebody who's trying to sound like a reporter or a documentarian to sound like. It's totally affected and stupid. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of lore for them to play with and explore. And you're right. It's disjointed. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, to me, that added to the realism of it. Yeah. Because you didn't exactly. know what to believe. You didn't know what... At, yeah. You know, the, the story was so broad. You know, you didn't know, are, are we... Is there really some sort of supernatural witch? And, and these are the things that they go through The in the movie, too. You know, they... At first, when they start hearing weird noises in the night... They think that somebody's f***ing with them, you know, like locals Mm -hmm. or somebody who doesn't want them out there. And then they start to wonder if it's supernatural or whatever. Another one of my favorite things, another one of these accidents that I think worked to their advantage so much is, uh, you know, they're camping and they get lost. I mean, that's the biggest Concern right away is that they're lost in the woods, and Heather is, you know, feigning this confidence that she's going to get them out. But tensions are growing as, um, you know, they it becomes increasingly clear that they're lost. But uh, they start hearing strange things in the night, and at one point, and this was so scary to me in the theater. They've already heard the noises one night, and the noises sound like breaking twigs and branches and then maybe also some kind of like animal noises or voices it's all very obscure which is good Mm. I wouldn't you know you don't want it to be too clear because you want it to be a mystery for us too as much as it is for them but uh I think the second night they're all huddled in the tent thinking what are they going to do and something attacks the tent ultimately in real life what it was was the director was just standing outside the tent hitting it with his hands (laughs) but we're seeing it from the inside and it looks really scary the actors didn't know it was going to happen their reactions are genuine they decide to get at well decide it all happens very quickly they they jump out of the tent and go running um, and so the footage is super shaky because they're running and it's dark and so uh, you can just see in the beam of the, like, the light on the camera. And at one point, you hear Heather say, you, you don't see her because we can only see her back, but she looks over to the left and she says, Oh my God, what the f*** is that? What the f*** is
0: that? Josh,
1: who was filming from behind, was supposed to pan left to where she was looking. And we were supposed to see the Blair Witch. And it was somebody, I don't know, part one of the crew members, dressed in like all white with eh, pantyhose uh, over his head. And we were just supposed to get a fleeting glance. But Josh forgot to pan. And they didn't reshoot it. So we never get a glimpse of the witch, which I think is so much better than if we had
0: yeah I don't, maybe. I mean, you know, maybe maybe <laughs> that would have been right. creepy
1: imagery but I just, in my mind the way that it was described, what it was supposed to be it just, it sounds hokey, I mean, maybe they could have pulled it off yeah. and it would have looked weird and creepy Um but I think that I prefer that uh, a mistake was made and we didn't actually ever see the witch.
0: I think you're probably right about that. We'd probably be saying about how it would have been better if they had not had the witch at all, rather than see this this weird white figure running by like, what in the heck was that? But in the same sense, it was a bit of a disappointment for me in the movie. And maybe it's because... Uh, again, I went in there not really believing all this, so my imagination maybe wasn't working over time. But seriously, like uh, as I was watching it, I really wanted so badly to see something. And really, uh, what we do get to see, what we do get to see, are are not figures and not people, but weird things, right? Yeah. Um, they come across uh, piles of of rocks along their path one of them at one point there was a pile of seven rocks and I think that was supposed to reference maybe seven of the kids who were killed at one time in one of the stories yes yeah, seven
1: part? yeah seven piles of rocks yeah
0: when they wake up from I think the first night that they're kind of molested or they're hearing things or their tent is something uh, when they wake up uh, they step outside and there are three piles of rocks out there and it's obviously a pile of rock for each of them and that's creepy yeah. And they think it's creepy too, but then they press on and it's, you know, 20 more minutes of them arguing about who lost the map, what, where are we, how are we going to get out of here, fighting, not fighting, yada, yada, yada. Then they camp again uh, and there's some mysterious noises and then they wake up and they go around some more and then they come across one of the more iconic things from this movie and that is this little part in the woods, kind of a mini clearing where there are all of these stick figures. They're hanging from trees, and they're stuck to trees, and they're tied to trees, and they're on the ground. And, and this is pretty well freaking them out because, well, of course, a pile of rocks isn't natural, but these clearly tied together stick figures, somebody or something did this, and it's creepy as hell, mm-hmm. right? So that freaks them out, and it would freak me out, too, if I were out there in the woods. But as a theater goer, it wasn't really freaking me out too much. Uh, And uh, you know, so then they go and they argue some more, and they're lost some more. And this time around, I was really trying hard to get in the heads of these kids. Like, okay, I'm lost in the woods with them. Wouldn't I be scared too? Wouldn't I be scared too? Because that seems to be the scariest part of the movie. Is they're lost, and night's gonna come at some point, and mysterious things are happening at night, and these ominous signs are along their path they're coming across they, at one point they think they've been walking south the whole way but they come across the same creek with the same log that they previously crossed uh, and that's frustrating and they have these moments of breakdown which are also really good right yeah and and convincingly
1: well because yeah, they, because they are genuine you know hmm. they had some Idea of what was going to happen, but there were also tons of surprises along the way. Plus, you also have to just consider, you know, all of this tension, the infighting. It's real because they really are sleeping in the woods for eight days, um, and you know they're they really are walking through the woods all day every day. Um, They were given, you know, limited food. You know, they were given some snacks and things, not like they were being starved, but they they were exhausted and hungry. And so, you know, they're given these directions, these maps to follow, and they walk through the forest all day, and they end up back exactly where they started in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Heather... At first doesn't want to admit it And when she finally realizes that That Mike or whoever it is That's telling her it's the same tree Across a creek When she finally realizes it's true She falls to the ground and weeps And I think that a lot of that You know she's an actress But I I think a lot of it is genuine Like Jesus we just walked Through the woods all day Carrying these huge backpacks All this camera equipment Just to end up where we started. Um, So some of that (laughs) frustration uh, is real, and you can see it in the tension when they fight, too. I just thought it was really kind of hilarious that, you know, in the beginning, Heather and Mike are kind of um, sparring with one another. Uh, and Josh is playing the peacekeeper. And that's the way it was supposed to be. But as the movie goes on, you just see Josh getting more and more angry at Heather. And eventually, Mike has to step in and be the peacekeeper.
0: <laughs> that's right.
1: I, and it just it works for me. I mean, I, I'm going on and on about all these great things. I, I, none of that negates what you say. The fact that if you know it's not real, it's just not as compelling. But I also think that it is more compelling if you know about the production, which is why I think we're focusing so much on that, because I think it's more interesting than just talking about people walking around in the woods.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of sad, right? It's like something that we're kind of you get a lot of more fun out of watching and analyzing it nowadays than you get out of actually experiencing it really maybe the way it was intended to be experienced in the beginning. You know, it's more of just like a cultural relic that we can examine and like it's sitting in a museum somewhere, you know. Uh, but that's not necessarily bad there are a lot of movies like that too um that we just can't enjoy so much today but we can still appreciate them
1: you said cultural relic in many ways it is and i think in that way that hurts it too if you are a first time viewer because like even Mm. those those stick figures they're so iconic at this point you know they've popped up in other movies they've popped up in television shows they've You know, that that imagery, you you see it, video games, you see it all over the place, these creepy stick figures. I don't recall ever seeing them before this movie. No, me neither. And so, you know, when I was seeing it for the first time, they're very simple. They're just these very rustic, made out of twigs and things from the forest, tied together to kind of... Uh, be representative of, like, a a human figure, and they're hanging from the trees. And I had never seen anything like that before, and it was very ominous. Young people especially, or anybody, going in and watching it now, they've seen it. You know, like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. That's scary. Well, I hadn't seen it before, and it was scary. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.
0: So, youngins. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, but they had that like Wicker Man quality to them, like um, evocative maybe of some old religion or some evil, you know, witchcrafty thing in the forest. So, like you said, even though at the time uh, it was the first time we'd seen them, they were super creepy. And now we've seen that kind of thing all over the place. So it doesn't really feel, it doesn't have that impact. I think another scene that I really enjoyed, and I hadn't even remembered from before, was. When Josh is super frustrated with Heather and they're definitely lost and Heather's frustrated too, I think she's had her breakdown. She's just leaning up against a tree and he has her camera and he is taunting her.
1: My, you can that do better than that. Guys, we have things to prepare for here.
0: Okay, here's your motivation.
1: You're lost. You're angry in the woods. And no one here is here to help you. There's a fucking witch and she keeps leaving shit outside your door. There's no one here to help you. She left little trinkets. You fucking took one of them. She ran after us. There's no one here to help Josh! you. We walked for 15 hours today. We ended up in the same place. There's no one here to help you. That's your motivation. Stop. That's your motivation.
0: Tears are welling up in her eyes. And that's got to be a little genuine, too. Oh, Uh, yeah. There's a bit of meta going on there as well, I think, because he as an actor is taunting her as an actor in the same sense that she's, you know, but it makes sense in the context of the movie as well. That scene's really powerful. And I felt really sorry for her at that moment. Uh, but I could also understand Josh's frustration, especially because she's such a tool. You yeah, know, for most, Nothing's more annoying. Well, there are a lot of annoying things, but there are a few things that are more annoying than being in a situation with somebody else who's pretending that everything's all right and pretending that they're in control uh, and trying so hard at it that they're not even good at it and you know they're not in control and, and you just hate that. You know, it's like, who are you to... To, to be so arrogant. Also, we're all responsible for each other here. We're all part of this situation. How can you claim all the time that you're in control? It's like, I can't trust you anymore, and you're supposed to be the one who's leading this project. It's a really interesting dynamic between the three of them, even though it is rather simple.
1: Yeah, I don't remember if it was right before that part or right after, but Josh is still behind the camera. Heather doesn't like being on camera for whatever reason, but Josh is behind the camera and things have calmed down uh, and he says I, I think I figured out why you like the camera so much and she's like oh yeah how come uh, and he says because it's it's not reality it's, it's filtered reality when you're behind the camera you can kind of um, convince yourself that it's it's not real um, mm. and that's kind of meta too moment. yeah yeah I, I liked that moment
0: it's really clever. It makes you wonder, and that's another fun thing about this movie it makes you. Well, obviously they all came up with this dialogue themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's just really pretty smart. I mean, they deserve a ton of credit <laughs> for for this movie. They should get writing credits for this film. Really? really? Yeah. <laughs> I think they all did pretty well by the time it was over. They had to sign releases um, stating that they would help keep up the fiction for a while, that they were dead and missing. Mm-hmm. And even though in, you know they had missing missing posters up at, at one of the film festivals they had played, like uh, they were handing out flyers, like let us know if you have informa- any information about these actors or actresses who disappeared. But it turned out there was a television executive who really had disappeared yeah. a few mm-hmm. days before that. And when they found that out, they're they kind of like, oh, this is kind of a bad taste. So then they they took those down. And he was found later, apparently, so um, that was that's nice. Um, but, yeah, so to get back to the movie, uh, they wander around in the woods some more, and uh, eventually one night they go to sleep and wake up, and Josh is gone. I think you said it earlier that the dynamic between Heather and Josh in real life was getting so bad that the directors made the decision that they were going to pull Josh's character out of there entirely.
1: It was supposed to be Mike. Mike was supposed yeah, to disappear. Was... And 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 Heather and Mike didn't know that Josh was going to disappear. The the filmmakers told him wait till they go to sleep and then sneak out. Um and so that's what he did. <laughs> and I read that the actor who played well, Josh Leonard, <laughs> he snuck out and he found the filmmakers and they were like, "Okay, you're dead now." <laughs> and he was he was actually relieved because there was a concert that he wanted to go to. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think he said He said he, like, took a shower, got stoned, went to Denny's, and (laughs) and (laughs) did a concert. (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, so,
1: right. And they wake up in the morning. They don't know where he is. um, But right outside the tent, and I don't remember if this is, you know, and there had already been something established where, like, a a previous morning... Um, the their camp had been messed with and it was only Josh's stuff that had been messed with and like there was some kind of weird slime on his backpack or something so they had kind of projected that maybe Josh was in trouble but after he disappears uh right outside the tent she finds this bundle of sticks and I hadn't put this together um and, and I don't know if this was the inspiration but there there is uh, an old story called the devil and Tom Walker, I think. There's two different The Devil. There's The Devil and Tom Walker and The Devil and Daniel Webster. I don't remember which one it is. But in one of them, this guy goes into the woods and he makes a deal with the devil. Um, and he comes back and his horrible wife uh, scolds him for not making a better deal. So she goes out into the woods to make a deal with the devil and she never comes back. And later he goes out into the woods and he finds her apron all tied up. And when he opens it up, he finds like her heart and liver in there. Um mm. And in this uh, She finds this bundle of sticks And at first she just throws it away But later when she can get away And Mike isn't around She goes and she opens it up And first of all It's bound in strips of Josh's shirt And when she opens it up uh, There's a packet made from the fabric Of his shirt And she can tell that it's bloody from the outside And when she opens it up There are teeth in there Uh, And she freaks out And I remember in the theater just being disgusted and and just absolutely having no idea what was going on. Um, But that imagery um, was pretty scary and gross. (laughs) And just the mere idea of it when they have no idea what's going on.
0: Well, it's the first time some harm has come to a character, and then at that point it's verifiable harm, right? Somebody tore his shirt into strips, but took the time to put this bundle together with his teeth, and blood and whatever else in it and so uh i mean at that point you know you just have to be over the moon scared for your life right uh, yeah
1: and they've heard his agonizing screams in the night mm-hmm. for at least one night and and then that kind of leads so you know they hear his screams all through the night she finds the bundle they're still lost there's uh, th- uh another night time where we get the infamous scene that was in all the trailers it's Probably the most recognizable scene from the movie of Heather doing this nighttime confessional after Mike has gone to sleep. And it's just an intense close-up of her face, which again was another mistake. Uh, she was supposed to be fully in frame, but she accidentally zoomed in too much. Um, so you can only kind of see her from her upper lip up. She goes on this whole monologue where she apologizes to her parents and to Josh's parents. and I am
0: so... So sorry for everything that has happened. Because in spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything.
1: It's really effective because she's ugly crying. You know, like yeah, a, a lot of actresses' vanity wouldn't allow this. Um, you know, the the tears are falling, snot is rolling out of her nose, um, and it feels authentic.
0: It does. It's also gross to watch. I remember is it one of the scary movies? The the, the parody films where they do this scene and they just have like snot continually gushing out of <laughs> out of the character's nose during this scene. It it's hilarious. Oh God man. Yeah, it but it's effective and, and it's a turning point for her character too, really. This person who's acted so in control this whole time. Uh, suddenly, fessing up to responsibility for it all, um, and that she doesn't know what's going to happen, but she knows it's going to be terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. But once again, we don't have a lot of time for character development in this anyway. She's maybe the the strongest personality, I think. I don't know. For for me, like Mike and Josh, obviously Josh gets angry, and Mike ends up being the calm one. And then Josh disappears, and Mike kind of still seems to be the calmer one, right? Yeah, but as a sense of like who mike really is or what his you know dreams or aspirations or motivations or you know what he'd be like to have a beer with you really don't get a feeling for any of that you know i just know i just know i wouldn't want to have a beer with with heather i'd want to stay the hell away from her
1: right she's super and annoying. i <laughs> she is she's really awful um yeah. just just obnoxious but it's not like i felt a strong connection to any of them but i legitimately felt bad for them like Sure. Oh, this this is really awful. Like, you know, even like just... Like if you were there. Yeah, right. E- putting yourself in their shoes, be, even just beyond the supernatural stuff, just being lost in the woods, I mean, that is scary enough. You know, I live in a rural area. I've spent lots of time in the woods, uh, and, and the woods that they're in look like the woods that I'm accustomed to. Mm. And it's all fun and games until you get lost, because... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, they keep saying, one of my favorite uh, l- parts in the movie is they keep talking about getting lost. And Heather says, we can't get lost. This is America. We have destroyed all of our natural resources. We are bound to find civilization if we just keep walking. Yeah, And, and in most places, that is true. But there are certainly still places in the United States, where you could very easily become lost, um, and it would be potentially deadly. You know, if you can't find resources, you can't find shelter, people can't find you. People do die in America every year from getting lost and from exposure, and and so even just that, I sympathized with them, and then when all this weird shit starts happening, I felt bad for them. Yeah, yeah. Even, it, even Heather, who I didn't like, like you said, who I wouldn't want to be friends with, um, I felt bad for her too. And I, you know, I felt – when she's giving that confessional and she's saying, you know, Mike says it's not my fault, but I know it is. This was my project. I told them I knew what I was doing. I even felt bad for her then because I can see myself in that position. Mm. I'm probably more like her than I would like to admit in that I don't like to admit when I'm wrong. And it's really difficult for me to have to do that. And so when she has to admit to the camera and to herself, I screwed this up <laughs> and and it's really my fault. I felt bad for her.
0: Well, and there's also kind of a na- naivete here that, to the situation that we can all relate to. You know, we've all had our moments where we've just had these fun projects, right? It's this innocent, fun little project. You're getting a group of people together. You're going to go do something. And for that to end in tragedy is... Is a tragedy, you know? It's, this wasn't like we went off to war. This wasn't right. supposed to be some serious situation. We were just going to spend a few nights in the woods, and I have a map and a GPS, and you know, we're just investigating this legend. It's probably bullshit because we don't believe in it, blah, right. blah, blah. And, uh, and you know, I've done projects kind of like that, where you just get together and you do things, and then... Something happens. Somebody falls off a cliff, and now it's not fun anymore. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what this is. And so just the situation itself, being lost in the woods, being on this fun project that, that was just supposed to be nothing and turns out to be you know, terrifying, those are things we can relate to right and we can in that way put ourselves in some of these characters shoes even if we can't always relate to these characters or really know them or necessarily care what happens to them we care what happens to them because we can easily see ourselves in their shoes yes absolutely absolutely i totally get that
1: and you know it all leads up to this ending which again is also uh very iconic and has been spoofed and referenced in many other things but um Uh, The night after Heather finds the the bundle with the teeth in it, which were real teeth, by the way, in case you're curious, they got it from a dentist. (laughs) (laughs) They, again, in the night, they hear Josh screaming. So they run out looking for him, and they come across this house, which we are led to believe is the house that they were talking about in the beginning of the movie, this Rustin Parr's house, where these child murders took place. And they go in, and you know, I don't know how much of it was done in mixing, but they do a good job in the final film of making it very disorienting. Like it sounds like the voice is coming from upstairs, or, or, and then it sounds like it's coming from downstairs. And I, mm. you know, I, I know that in production, all of these screams were pre-recorded, and they had uh, speakers, you know, uh, strategically placed in the woods and in different places, so they could change the output um and it would be disorienting but uh, you know the the directions for mike were to get in the house and run around really fast and run up and down stairs and try to keep heather as far behind you as you can um and and he does and you hear her Screaming for him And it sounds Mm. so real Like she really sounds terrified And according to her she was Uh, Eventually she catches up to him And they, they go upstairs And they don't really find anything up there But then he thinks he hears Something downstairs So he runs off without her And again she's yelling after him to wait And he goes down into the basement And we see I think maybe actually it was upstairs We had seen like runes and like handprints on the walls, all very creepy stuff. Uh, And then he gets down to the basement and we're just seeing from his camera's POV and it just, we hear like a thud and the camera drops to the floor. And then the perspective cuts to Heather's camera and she's running around still screaming for him and she runs downstairs and the light of her camera pans across the room and you see Mike standing in a corner with his face to the wall, which was part of the lore. This Rustin Parr would take the kids down into the cellar in pairs, and he would make one of them face the wall while he killed the other one, and then he would kill the other one. So Mike is down there with his face to the wall. Again, we, I guess, kind of hear some sort of scuffle. Heather's camera falls to the floor And that's it. Again, these actors, you know, Mike was instructed to run downstairs. He did. When he got down there, two crew members, all completely in black, grabbed him and directed him to stop talking, and they put his camera down on the floor, and they told him to stand against the wall. And then Heather ran in. She had no idea what she was going to see. She saw him and very calmly... They grabbed her and motioned for her to stop screaming. They laid her camera down. So what seems very chaotic and fast and brutal was actually really well choreographed. And I just think that the ending remains very chilling. Um, Even if you know it's fake, I still think it's a good ending.
0: It is. It's pretty shocking because it's not what you expect. Well, first of all, you don't know the movie's going to end here. Right. Second of all, it's all very chaotic scenes. So this chaotic scene clearly building to something. And it, Maybe it's going to be our, be our showpiece. S- something grand. And when she runs down into the basement and you see him with his face against the wall, the, it's just a dissonant image. It doesn't jive. with. Right. It's totally shocking to your brain. And it's creepy in that way, like, what the hell's going on? And you hardly have time to react to that when her camera falls. Right. And that's the end. Uh, And so, yeah, of course, your brain's going, what the hell's going on? And, oh, my God, is this it? Like, this is all we get? And in any other movie, you'd be super disappointed. Like, oh, they screwed up the ending. Like, they, they chickened out. They didn't know what to do. And in this movie, well, it's found footage. What are we gonna do? You know, mm-hmm. This is all the footage we got, <laughs> right? Right. So, so they have an excuse for it, and, and and that was something that did haunt me a little bit as the as I replayed the film in my mind. Like, what was that? I d- didn't even remember the Rustin Parr lore from earlier in the movie, so I was super confused. In fact, I read that the filmmakers actually went back and added the Rustin Parr stuff. They did after the fact. So even they hadn't completely planned that part out, but decided upon showing it to audiences that they needed some little explanation to tie that in. And then when the distributor picked it up, uh, they had recommended a different ending. Mm-hmm. And so they dutifully went out and shot like four or five different endings, some of which, you know, had them like crucified on one of those stick things and some things which had gore and, and all kinds of stuff in it. And uh, by the time they were all done, they said, look, ugh, I think this, the original ending's probably better. And uh, thankfully, the the distributors agreed and let them go through with it. And it turned out to be, again, one of the most iconic endings in horror. Really, we we still talk about it today, I think. Well, we are talking about it today. Right. But I mean, like people reference this all the time and it shows up on lists as like scariest moments in, in horror cinema or top 50 scariest endings in a horror movie. You know, this is this is definitely up there. So it's effective. It really is. It,
1: it And the movie was huge. Like, there was so much hype around this movie. I remember all the hype around it. That's why I was so excited. I, I, I must have seen it opening weekend or really close to that because, again, I still was under the impression that it was real. And it opened opposite The Haunting, which was – I think it was The Haunting. I made. It was another – it was a, a huge budget horror movie. Um, and it blew it out of the water. Like you said, there are varying reports, but, um, I read that they, the actual production of the movie, these guys didn't have any money. Um, so the actual production was only 20 to $25,000. And like, they were so strapped for cash that they bought, I think the 35 millimeter camera or whatever it was that they used. They bought it at like a circuit city. And after they filmed, they took it back. (laughs) <laughs> they took it back <laughs> 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 and got their money back for it that's how strapped they were for cash so the production was like 20 to 25,000 somebody put in 500 to 750,000 for post it got sold for distribution for 1.1 million dollars they did 25 million dollars in marketing Uh, And it made worldwide over $250 million. So, I mean, it was just insane how well this little movie by these nobody directors starring these no-name actors who nobody had ever heard of just was a worldwide phenomenon and sparked a franchise. A a couple years later, Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows came out. Have you seen that?
0: No, I haven't. I've always been curious.
1: It's not very good. I mean, as a standalone movie, it's fine. But they, you know, they abandoned the found footage thing. It's it's clearly like a Hollywood picture. Standalone, it's okay. It's not great. Um, there, were, uh, there was a series of young adult books. There were video games. Um, and then I think in 2018, there was a surprise sequel, which was just Blair Witch.
0: Did you see that?
1: Yep. In the theater Alan and I went back to the theater <laughs> oh, How romantic <laughs> And I liked How, how did that turn mo- out I liked the movie But it just Without the hype And without You know It's just not the same You know Knowing that it's And and uh, The third one is really Kind of a direct sequel To the first They basically ignore The second one altogether And The third one does What people Whined and moaned about the first one not doing, which was not showing anything, not showing the witch. You do see the witch in uh, Blair Witch. You do see a lot of these supernatural phenomenon. They play a lot with like um, time jumps and and weird stuff, and it's clever and it's a well made movie. But you know, it just doesn't stand up to The original, not necessarily in quality, but uh, in in hype and in experience. But nonetheless, it, I mean, it's it's a, a huge phenomenon, and I I bet money will see more from it moving forward.
0: I mean, it has to carry the legacy of just a powerhouse original film that was so original at the time and did something that, you know, quite frankly, probably can't be repeated. Right. Right now we watch a lot of found footage movies. We know they're found footage, but we still find reason to enjoy them. People thought this was going to be kind of a one-trick pony in that way, that like, okay, you know, now a whole bunch of people are going to rush out with their video cameras and make found footage films, thinking they can do them all cheap. Uh, but you know, it's not really going to work again. Well, it has uh-huh. It has worked uh, in big budget films, as well as low budget films. Uh, we've seen people do really innovative stuff with this, where they haven't had to pretend that it's real, right? We as the viewer, just, uh, it's just another way, another format, another frame of telling a story. And that's, that's kind of neat. And Blair Witch, in a way, opened that up for us a little bit. At least brought it mainstream. And I was super excited when it came out. It was so popular as a budding filmmaker who also, at, around this same time, ran out and shot a movie with a digital camera that I returned to Walmart when I was done with. it. <laughs> 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 I wasn't above that either. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I was excited to see. Because at the time, there was this huge debate among my friends and I, like, Yeah, these digital cameras and things are getting better and better all the time. But you probably really have to shoot on film for audiences to accept it. And now, of course, it's not true. 20 years later, we'll watch anything. Yeah. But back then, to see a movie that was shot with a video camera. Up on the big screen, making hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide was extremely inspiring. And I think it did inspire a whole generation of filmmakers that otherwise would have thought that they had to go to huge lengths and enormous amounts of resources to put their vision up on the screen in front of people. And so, you know, in, in that way, it did inspire me, even if at the end of the day, uh, I wasn't as taken by the movie as I really wanted to be at the time. And still today, like, I think we're both kind of agreeing it, it doesn't quite stand up to a a a fresh viewing by somebody who's never seen it before. Yeah. Thank you, James, for giving us the opportunity to talk about The Blair Witch Project. Uh, If you have a request, you can find us online. Just search for Two Guys and a Chainsaw. You'll find our Facebook page. You can find our website at twoguys.red40net.com. You can also find our YouTube channel where you can uh, listen to us while you just stare at a still image of our faces. And uh, (laughs) it doesn't sound entertaining to me. (laughs) I think it's more of a turnoff than anything. But apparently there are a dozen people who like to do that so if you're one of those uh go down there and make a 13 and subscribe to our channel please so that we can do a little bit more stuff with that in the future until next time i'm todd and i'm craig with two guys in a chainsaw